Hi everyone, I'm Bethan. I'm Mark, and welcome to Seeing Red. A UK True Crime podcast. Woo, we're bringing it back. <laughs> we're bringing sexy back. Oh, crikey. Um, I don't know what to say now, you've put me off. Sorry, you welcome want to say to about the, the British Show Podcast everyone. Awards, I don't do you? I do want to say about the British Podcast Awards, because the deadline's coming up, so if you guys would like to vote for us, it would mean the world for us. Um, you just need to go on to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote, and then you search for for us obviously you're going to vote for us of course you wouldn't be voting for anyone else um you don't have to be in the uk to vote you just pop your email address in and and bob's your uncle yeah they don't necessarily send you stuff either you can tick to not get marketing and stuff as well which is sometimes what puts me off voting on things or Mm. signing petitions and stuff online because i'm like oh i just want to say it once and then go. But yeah, please do um, oh log on and yeah. give us a vote. We'd really appreciate it. It would be amazing um, if we could so get into that. You'll be voting for the Listener's Choice Award. Mm-hmm. And if we can get into the top 20, well, we'll just be blown away, really. If we get into really. the top 100, I'll be impressed. Yeah. I'll be really chuffed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I will apologise in advance because I am a bit sick at the moment. So if my voice starts to go, what we thought is we'll just swap over and Mark can just finish off the episode. I don't know if it's something you'll know much about though, so I'm wondering if it'll be new to you. I've been inspired to discuss a case from UK history of a tragedy that occurred during a football match in the late 80s because recently in Northern Ireland, three teenagers, a 16-year-old and two 17-year-olds, died at a St. Patrick's Day disco after a large crowd of partygoers tried to force their way into the Greenvale Hotel. As well as those three fatalities, there were also three youngsters admitted to hospital, and many more were injured, but luckily not severely. The mental anguish that they suffered also must have just been horrific too, and hearing about this crash really reminded me of the Hillsborough disaster, which is an event in our history that still stirs up emotions to this day. And when I did my research into it, I realised I just didn't know much about the case. Um, I'm so glad now that I know more about what happened and I can share that with people because perhaps if you're not in a football family or you're not in that sort of environment, you might not know much about this. It also so happened that whilst I was writing this episode and this case up, it was the 30-year anniversary of the event of the event as well. So I definitely took a moment to reflect that day and spent some time looking at like the news reports of the 30-year anniversary tributes. I can't really work out for definite why it hit home to me so much. Like it, it is my absolute nightmare. An inescapable crush is probably my worst sort of fear. Or perhaps it's the absolute randomness of life when people are just expecting to have a nice day out and they get caught up in something so unimaginable. Do you know what probably disturbs me the most about this kind of scenario, which we've also covered um, something a bit similar with the Denmark Place fire mm-hmm. episode in season one, um, where there was a fire in a kind of quite a big, like five, six story yeah. building in Soho in London. I think um, it was only three stories, but... Well, <laughs> but people were kind of rushing to get mm-hmm. out and they were trampled a bit there. I think what um, what disturbs me most is the way humans behave in mm-hmm. that situation, where obviously your life is on the line, you will do anything to survive. Mm-hmm. So if that does mean trampling over somebody else to get out of there, then you will do it. Yeah. And I think that's what I find um, terrifying, actually. Yeah. But I know a little bit about Hillsborough, um, not very much. Um, mm-hmm. I think it'd be a really interesting case and very worthwhile case mm. to cover because I think there's probably lots of people like us, particularly our kind of age, yeah. where we would have either not really been alive when it happened or been very young 
and we've kind of grown up hearing about it but mm-hmm. never really taken the time to actually study it and understand exactly what happened yeah i've just heard snippets on the news mm-hmm. over the last three decades yeah absolutely and for people abroad perhaps it might give them an understanding of why certain things within football have now changed a lot of things changed off the back of just this event also a culmination of a few other events as well but this really made big changes on the 15th of april 1989 fans of football teams liverpool and nottingham forest were getting ready for the fa cup semi-final match the teams were two of the country's top teams this year and it was a key match crowds of people were queuing to get into the stands ready for kickoff so it was the 15th of april and it was really sunny spring day The match was to be held at Sheffield Wednesday's Hillsborough Stadium and thousands of fans began to make their way over. The match was due to begin at three o'clock and a chartered train that had brought 350 Liverpool fans to the match arrived at roughly 20 past two. Um, So it was going to be a bit of a tight timescale to get everyone in on time for kickoff. Many supporters didn't want to hurry inside because the weather was so nice. so They were taking their time. And a lot of supporters had also been held up in a traffic jam that was caused by nearby roadworks on the M62. As is pretty common at football matches in the UK, I don't know about around the world, the supporters of the two teams were segregated to avoid confrontations and fights. The Nottingham Forest supporters were allocated the two stands on the east end. These stands had a combined capacity of over 29,500 people, and this bit was reached by 60 turnstiles. The Liverpool supporters were directed to enter the stadium via a different route. Now, although there were due to be more Liverpool supporters there, they were allocated the north and west ends, which was reached by just 23 turnstiles, compared by 60, and would hold just over 24,000 fans. The other teams sort of had 29,500 spaces. They would also have to reach the turnstiles through a single entrance at a narrow point, the Liverpool supporters. So this all meant that getting into the stadium was taking quite a long time for the Liverpool supporters. The Nottingham Forest supporters were all basically sat in their areas and stood in their sort of bits that they were watching the football. And the BBC commentator even commented to a cameraman at about 2.45, 2.46, there's gaps, you know, in parts of the ground. Well, if you look at the Liverpool end, to the right of the goal, there's hardly anybody on those steps. That's it. Look down there. Fans who didn't have tickets were advised by TV and radio not to attend because they wouldn't get in, but it's unclear whether these warnings were also repeated at the entrance to the stadium or not. And people who arrived at the turnstiles with incorrect tickets or no tickets were turned away, but then they couldn't really leave because the crowd was all behind them and they were all coming in through this instant one point. Outside the stadium, a bottleneck developed with more and more fans arriving. They obviously wanted to get inside for kickoff. They could hear cheers from inside as the players came out onto the pitch and tensions were rising. As it was absolutely clear to the police that not everyone was going to get in before kickoff, one constable did radio the control room and requested that the match got delayed until all the fans were inside. But unfortunately, this request was denied. And it's really important to note that whilst this is probably a bit annoying for the fans, it's not uncommon. That happened quite a lot. And I sort of think, you know, it's probably being televised mm-hmm. on one of the mainstream channels in the UK. Yeah. So you can't really just delay it because it throws out the whole scheduling for yeah. TV for that day, for that evening. Um, so, yeah, I do kind of understand it because that was my first thought. Couldn't mm-hmm. they just delay it? Yeah. And they did in many other games. They did yeah, okay. for whatever reason on this one, whether it was to do with that or just couldn't deal with 
the uproar of doing Yeah, or someone it. just made a snap decision yeah. and it was a wrong decision. This is just one of many wrong decisions, sadly. It was actually determined many years later that to get everyone into the ground safely, it would have taken until roughly 3.40. People trying to enter were unaware of the problems getting worse and worse ahead of them, and whilst usually there would have been police or stewards stood at the entrance to the tunnel directing the fans to side pens, on this occasion this was not done, and no one's been able to determine exactly why it wasn't done on this day. Just another thing where a decision was made that just helped to create this perfect storm. Often police horses were used as a bit of a break, being quite a big, obvious barrier. This would naturally send people around them and off to other sides, but this wasn't done either. And the issues, whilst terrifying for the people inside, were largely unnoticed by anyone else because the players were getting ready to start the match, the fans were excited, and everyone was unaware of the carnage that was beginning to occur. So I wanted to kind of explain to you what the stadium would look like back then because stadiums nowadays are really different to this. But it's very hard to explain because when you look at maps and stuff of the stadium, what you see is um, what it is now. So the main thing I would say is to have a look on Google because you can kind of see, but it was standing at the bottom all the way around and people would just stand to watch the match and mm. then the top bits would be seating. Um, so those people would be sat on benches to watch it. It's, it's very different. Now you look and it's just rows and rows of seats. Prior to this as well, it was quite legal to sell or give away a football ticket secondhand. But in 1994, the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act actually made it illegal to do that without the consent of the original seller and just to try and keep people's um, identities of who's bought that ticket and who's sit- sitting oh, where. because I was going to say why, what difference mm. would it make to them, but okay, yeah. Yeah. So the legislation was kind of primarily introduced to ensure the segregation of rival supporters, but it also then means with CCTV becoming more more easy to use you can identify perhaps troublemakers or if something goes wrong or if something happens you know who's who all seated stadiums are far safer and easier to manage as well because you've got allocated seats you know how many tickets you send and you know who's sitting where so it's a lot safer i also think sorry to interrupt but i also kind of think when people are sat down they're probably a bit better behaved than Mm -hmm. if they stood up it's just like a weird psychological behavior that we as humans would have yeah So the police had decided to avoid any injuries outside of the ground to open a large exit gate that was usually used for people leaving after a match. Two other gates were then opened as well to try and relieve the pressure that was building. After an initial rush, thousands of supporters enter the stadium in what has been described as steadily at a fast walk. So they weren't running in or anything like that, but they were making their way with purpose. And whilst this initially did seem to help, it actually meant that there were even more people headed towards just 23 turnstiles. The people at the front were pushed up against the perimeter fencing. Now, this fencing was designed to prevent pitch invasions, and it was really quite high. And when you look at photographs, I would hazard a guess that it's about three metres high. Wow. That's kind of my opinion, so I don't know for definite, but that's how tall it looks. So when you see people standing, they're not even reaching the halfway point of this fencing. The photos that you can see online, I mean, because this was being televised and because there was press there, you can see the images and they are absolutely harrowing because while some people were desperately trying to climb out of the pens, within minutes the pens were filled from behind and the people at the front were just squashed one into each other. 
some photographs show people being crushed and actually I don't know who in these photographs but I read somewhere that some of the real um memorable images that people know of some of the people in those photographs actually did die Mm. so you are seeing people in their last moments a few members of the police at this sort of specific end of the pitch did notice issues occurring but they thought it was an attempted pitch invasion and actually tried to stop the fans from getting out of the pens because they just thought they're trying to cause an issue and again i'm not a football fan and i don't know much about hooliganism but it's very very rare that anybody would try and do a pitch invasion at the beginning of a match that never really happened so why this was a thought i don't know Perhaps the police were just already heightened and were making snap decisions in the wrong manner. But pitch invasions happen at the end or when things are going really wrong for a team, not at the beginning of an FA Cup semi-final. Because ultimately, all of those fans that are there to watch that match are there to watch the match. Exactly. And they want to see that they game. They want to see the match. And they want to see their Why team win. Why would they win. be trying so, to get on yeah, the pitch they wouldn't, at three o'clock? They're not going to sabotage that so that no. it can't happen. Exactly. You might get one or two people with that motive. Possibly. Um, possibly, but you wouldn't get a crowd. No, you would not get this many people. No. So this is all kind of happening. Um, if you imagine this, the pitch, sort of the, the shape of it in the rectangle, this is all kind of on the short end. And Liverpool's goalkeeper and the goal for Liverpool What's was What's the that, short end? Like, you know, if you have a rectangle, there's two long yeah. ends and two short ends. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like I, the go- a goal end then. The goal yeah. end. So this is all kind of happening behind the goalkeeper. And Liverpool's goalkeeper, Bruce Globola, actually reported that fans behind him were pleading for help as it was getting worse. Um, And we will go on to sort of hear some more from him and his actual words of what was going on. So the match, just to clarify, the match at this point had already started. I was just about to say that it's just begun. No, but that's okay. Um, Basically, it was about to start. So all the players were on the pitch. So they're all there ready. Everyone's cheering. Everyone's getting involved. There were plenty of Liverpool supporters who had gone and found their seats and had got places to go. But a lot of people still hadn't made it through. They were just in these like holding pens where you could stand to watch the match, but also you would make your way through. Right, I'm with you. So they'd they'd go go sort of through that pen, if you like, to find their seats or their standing area. Or their standing areas. But they literally can't move because there's so many people. A bit like when you get on a plane and everyone's putting their luggage in the overhead locker and and you're just like, oh, just move, come on, hurry up. You cannot go anywhere. Okay, I'm with you, yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so difficult is trying to explain it because I don't really really watch football, but I I do watch a little bit. But the pitch now is so different. See, that's the thing. I'm picturing a stadium now. Um, and exactly what it looks like and there are no high fences now that's all gone there is no standing room nope Um, so yeah it's hard to kind of visualise what it would have looked like 30 years ago really really different I think now like I've got a good understanding of of how that would have been at that time Um, and it's very tall as well so the seats along the top the terraces you can imagine there's people stood sort of that far up and it's quite high to get up as well. It's probably about a metre or two above where these people are as well. So a lot of people in one small place. And this is a huge ground where there are tens of thousands of seats Mm -hmm. for fans to watch the match. So it's on a massive scale. Yeah, exactly. So all the while the match had then started to begin. So they actually started the match because there was no knowledge of what was going on behind. Nobody had any idea. And actually the crowds really got into it. So when one of the Liverpool players made an attempt at scoring a goal, the crowd surged forward. And this actually then caused such a crash that one of the metal barriers gave way and the people inside fell in and even more people then fell on top again. 
Finally, the match was stopped at 3.05 when South Yorkshire Police Superintendent Greenwood, the ground commander, ran onto the field, gained the referee Ray Lewis's attention and got him to stop the match. Desperate football fans were climbing the fence in an effort to escape the crash, but it's not going to be easy and you've got people under you, around you, on top of you possibly. And like you say, that fence could be three metres high. Yeah. Um, some of the fans managed to escape through a small gate that they did get to force open and some of them I've read were managing to rip the metal barriers open but how easy it is because it's like um, like crosslink what's the sort of I, fencing I know what you mean yeah like where it's like zigzags yeah so it's not easy but you're in but you a can panic. almost like pull like you pull it make apart a, gap, a bit yeah because I think and you might come onto it but I I seem to recall pictures where people had kind of ripped the seats out of the ground and mm. were sort of using them to, to just do bash anything. their way out yeah. almost yeah exactly and some people were pulled up to safety by the people in the sa- in the stands above them so there's images of people leaning over the barriers from their seating and dragging people up out of the stand so again if you're trying to picture that almost a bit like at theater where yeah, people would kind of that's more your yeah, cup of tea of course so they imagine would, you're at a theater but it's quite a yeah, steep one like yeah so you're um, in the back in the cheap seats what's and the you're in, all kind of leaning over to pull people up what's the one in is it bristol where it's really really st- that's really steep the hippodrome really steep. hippodrome yeah. hippodrome in bristol yeah. imagine the hippodrome yeah basically yeah so at 3.10, the police control room radioed South Yorkshire Police Garage, requesting that they needed bolt cutters, and they were told that none were available. Again, I'm not sure why. Were they all out? Were they just not in Were they in use already? What was the situation? Nobody knows. Many of the people still trapped in the pens were packed in so tightly that a number of them died of compressive asphyxia while still standing up. Asphyxia. Asphyxia. I can't it's say It's taken that better word. than three attempts to get that right. I'm sorry, Which everybody. are all have edited out. Thank you. There were no public service announcements to tell the fans what was going on. So some of the Nottingham Forest supporters actually thought the Liverpool supporters were trying to disrupt the match or storm the pitch and began shouting and generally making angry sort of noises and, and threats at the Liverpool supporters, which obviously really upset them because they knew this wasn't people being dicks. It was really serious. But then it would fire them up as well. Police officers were deployed to create a cordon three quarters of the way down the pitch to keep the two groups of fans separate. So while some Nottingham Forest fans actually were trying to help and trying to go and do CPR, they were kept back from the police. And they'd wanted, a number of them wanted to try and help ferry people to the ambulances, but were told not to and on the pitch it was just carnage there were police officers there were stewards there were members of st john's ambulance service and also generally fans and people who were at the pit at the game as well but they were absolutely overwhelmed by the scale of the mess the members of the public that were trying to help like you said ripping down chairs to try and do things ripping down the advertising hoardings just Mm. to get flat boards so that they could stretch people out tearing this down with their bare hands And people were trying to help people who were injured with CPR, if they could. And the players were taken off to their dressing rooms at kind of the first signs of trouble. At that point, they were told that they'd be back out after like 30 minutes because nobody knew what was happening at that initial stage. So the following are quotes from people who were at the match and got caught up in the chaos and some descriptions of the event based on their testimonies. I felt like this was the best way to kind of explain just the confusion as well. So Peter Beardsley, who played for Liverpool, said that when the match was stopped, he thought that whatever problems there were were going to be sorted out quite quickly. 
and Liverpool defender Alan Hansen said that he knew of the trouble when two fans came onto the pitch and as they ran past him, he told them, get off, you'll get us into trouble. And one of them shouted to him, there are people dying back there, Al. Sadly, in retrospect, he found out that they were telling the truth, but at the time, he didn't really believe it. He kept concentrating on the match instead of paying these people any attention. He explained it as this, footballers are conditioned to concentrate on a game and it can take time to get out of match mode. We knew something terrible was happening, but with the adrenaline pumping, we were still half thinking about the job that we had to do. Up to when we were told that the game had been abandoned, I found it hard to stop thinking that we would be back on the field and I had to be tuned in mentally to the game. He said that later on he went with other players to visit a young victim in hospital in Sheffield. He was just 14 years old and his mum was waiting to turn off the life support machine but she wanted the players to see her son first. He had a son himself who was eight at the time and he said the mental anguish was huge. Manager Kenny Daglish, who now I have so much respect for, didn't know who he was before this, and now I'm, I just love him. He said that one morning before everyone was at work, he actually tied his children's teddy bears to one of the goalposts and looked at the pitch, which was covered in flowers, scarves and tributes. And he said it was really sad because the reason why the tributes were there was really sad, but equally on the same in the same breath, it was really magnificent to see them. A lot of the tributes had been left by people in the place where their loved one had stood or people who'd lost the person they stood next to when they'd watch games. And a lot of people chose to leave something special there as a memory that would only mean something to them and that person. One in particular that stuck with Kenny was two oranges left beside one of the barriers, and he took some time just thinking about that. Before anybody else was there, he just took time himself. And he's been praised a lot for the way that he held himself following the tragedy and how he led the team. He dealt with the horrific losses in a really inspiring way. He went to every funeral he possibly could. He ensured that his players dealt with their mental health issues, as well as being a support for the families as well of the people who'd lost their lives. Which is quite a progressive attitude back in the 80s to kind of consider their mental health. Definitely, because they were just like, we just need to drink through this. And he then was like, you need to go see these people. Because it almost, and I'm not saying it, it was the same thing at all. This was very different, but it does remind me a little bit of the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester when a bomb went off. She's been amazing, hasn't she? Yeah, Yeah, but you know, she was traumatised from Mm -hmm. that as well. Um, So it's kind of, you know, a disaster that happens in a, you know, public space where there's tens of thousands of people and, and, you know, celebrities or famous people, sports people or otherwise, um, they are affected Mm -hmm. by it too, absolutely. Yeah. So Kenny Daglish said about the days after the tragedy, we spent the week consoling the bereaved and attending funerals. On the Saturday, we held a service at Anfield. At six minutes past three, there was a minute's silence across the country. Then everyone at Anfield sang, you'll never walk alone. We tied scarves between Anfield and Goodison. We just wanted to show the unity existing on Merseyside. The following day, there was a final service on the pitch and it was really quiet, just the wind rustling the scarves tied to the crossbar. And when somebody shouted out, we all love you, we all broke down. He was also quoted as saying, I don't know how many funerals I went to in total, but Marina and I went to four in one day. I'm assuming Marina is his wife. Um, He also continued, we got a police escort between them. They were all harrowing, all those families mourning the loss of their loved ones. Most of the church services finished with, you'll never walk alone. I couldn't sing through any of it. I was too choked up. I was just stood in a daze trying to come to terms with what had happened. 
Substitute for Liverpool, Ian Rush, said of Kenny Daglish, if such horror can ever produce a hero, that man has to be Kenny. It is hardly an exaggeration to say he took the grief of 50,000 people on his shoulders. He accepted all the pressures to keep it from the players. He attended virtually every funeral, spent countless hours every day at the ground, meeting bereaved families and also comforting some of the players. John Barnes said, The tributes were not just at Anfield. I walked into Stanley Park and saw all the Everton scarves tied together. They stretched from Goodison Park to Anfield, a symbol of unity between the two clubs, and all football fans were united in their grief. Even those from Manchester United sent gestures of sympathy. Every fan had a reason to mourn. John Barnes has also been quoted as saying, People wept all the way home, so after the actual match. All the wives were crying. I was crying. Kenny was crying. Bruce said he was considering quitting. Although I never thought about giving up football, I understood what Bruce meant. That's the goalkeeper guy. Those fans were there to watch us. And there we were on a luxury coach going home as they were being laid out in a mortuary. As we travelled back across the Pennines, their mums and dads were making the reverse journey to identify their children's bodies. So I mentioned goalie Bruce Grobbler earlier and the events that day have never left him. In fact, he says in interviews that it haunts him. He said, it all happened right behind my goal. I can see those images today if I think about it. They will never leave. It doesn't get removed from your mind. I will never forget. He said that they started the match as normal and whilst the pen was getting full, it wasn't really anything to worry about. It was only when he went to get the ball from behind him, near to where everything was happening, that he realised the full horror. Every time he went back that way, he had desperate, frantic faces looking out at him, pleading for him to help them. And he would then go and ask for assistance from the police. And one of the times he asked the policewoman, she gave like a really crappy, like non-committal reply saying, there's nothing I can do. And this is a quote in his own words. He said he could hear people screaming to him, they're killing us, Bruce, they're killing us. I thought, who? I took the goal kick, but could still hear the voices shouting. I looked around and could see terror on people's faces. I said to a policeman, is there any chance you can open the gate? Then a shot went past, and as I retrieved a ball, I said to the policewoman, I thought it was a policeman, get the effing gate open, can't you see they need it? I kicked the ball out and then went back and said, get the effing gate open. I turned back, the ball went out of play, and that's when I shouted to the ref. The police came onto the field and the game was stopped. So really, he managed to get the game stopped? He really did. and After only six minutes of play yeah, or considering less? Considering how they're talking about um, being in the moment and in the zone, which you completely get, they're there to do a job. He's still talking to people, kicking the ball, going back, and it really, really affected him. And he would have played in hundreds of matches in his yeah. career, and not once would anything like that have ever no. happened. So you're not expecting what you're seeing unfold before your very eyes to actually ever happen. Yeah. So I think it takes a, a moment, doesn't it, for your brain to register mm-hmm. what is actually happening exactly. here. Am I going to have to stop a football game and which make is that a big decision, deal. which yeah. is a massive deal? Mm-hmm. There were probably, did you say it was FA Cup final? No, semi-final, yeah. Semi-final, it shows how like uneducated I am with football. But there were probably 15 million people watching mm-hmm. this in their living rooms at home throughout the UK. Yeah. So you're the one in front of all them saying it's a stop angle. Yeah, I we think need to something pause this. Yeah. going down here. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, he was finally able to help kind of persuade the referee to stop the game. And all the players were taken off the field and the manager had sort of said to them, keep yourselves warm because we might be going back out. And they didn't really know what was going on until a fan burst into the dressing room, crying and breaking down, saying that he had seen 10 bodies carted off already. 
he told the players who actually did quite know him as a fan. I think back in the day as well, you'd get to know your fans quite a lot. Maybe they still do now. Maybe you still have that. I don't know. He said it was like a war zone. The players got put on a coach. They left the stadium. And Bruce said that the drive back to Anfield was silent except for the radio on which reports and updates were constantly discussing the events that they had just left behind. He said, for two hours on the journey back home, we just listened to the radio. Every 10, 15 minutes, we'd hear an update. 20 deaths, 25 deaths. When it got to 30 deaths, we switched off the radio. We couldn't listen anymore. Um, And like we mentioned before, a number of the players thought about never playing again. But the families they spent time with actually did plead with them to keep playing. Kenny Daglish had spoken with the coaches and counsellors who suggested that the players speak to bereaved families and went to funerals. And apparently the time that they spent with the fans who were grieving, yet still to them football was important, actually gave them the confidence to go back out and play again. And also there would have been a number of fans that weren't killed but were injured, so they'd have been able to kind of speak to them. Mm -hmm. um, And they would have most probably said, you know, I'm passionate about the team and I want it to continue. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Stuart Pearce, the captain for Nottingham Forest, the opposition team, said that he wasn't aware of anything that had happened. He was rushed into the dress rooms at the time, but it was only afterwards when he saw stuff on the news that he felt, oh my God, I was there. But he just felt really detached because he'd been in one mindset, taken off the pitch, and then it all happened. Liverpool striker John Aldridge had said that if I hadn't become a footballer, it is almost certain that I would have been in the Leppings Lane Terrace on Saturday, April 15th, 1989. But fate decreed that I was not there as a fan, but as a player, oblivious to what was going on. Um, He said that he sheds tears every day on April 15th and is the tears are not out of ritual obligation or duty. They are out of a sense of grief for the lost and a genuine feeling for the loved ones that they left behind. I think for men, especially like manly, footbally men to say things like this, I think it's really important. Um, You might know this name. I don't feel like you'll know many of the people's names, but Stephen Gerrard, do you know who he is? yeah. So he was only eight years old at the time of this disaster, but his cousin John Paul was actually killed on the day. A lot of the family hadn't known that John Paul was at the game because he'd go quite often to see Liverpool football play, but his mum had got him a ticket as a special treat to go to the semi-final. And actually, this is the reason why Steven Gerrard plays football. He wow. got into football in memory of his cousin. Um, So this is all really, really tragic and horrible. And I wanted to kind of put something a little bit light in the episode. So one of the fans who'd come out of a coma following Hillsborough met the players in hospitals as they were doing their rounds. He actually asked them for a ticket to the replay. Alan Hansen said of this, it was going from one extreme of the scale to the other, from tragedy to humour. It was impossible to comprehend, but I guess that it showed that football remained a comfort or an escape for all of those involved. Yeah. I thought fair play to this guy. That, he's just come out of a coma and he's like, yeah, I mean, give that, me a free ticket. I get it, but I mean, it's probably like unfinished business. He, he's got to yeah. go back and watch that. Like, psychologically, it's important. Mm-hmm. So, many people might not know this. I think I feel like anybody who's sort of read about this in the, in the press or from the UK would know that there were 96 people who lost their lives due to this disaster. In the end, only 14 of the 96 who were fatally injured arrived at hospital 94 people died on the day either at the stadium in the ambulances or shortly after arrival at hospital due to the sheer amount of people anybody who didn't live nearby and could safely do so were actually asked to go to their local hospitals for treatment so basically get in your car and go somewhere else because there was too many people 
And as well as the people who lost their lives, hundreds more were injured, apparently over 750. And I've read in a number of places that thousands were traumatised, but I would be willing to bet that anyone who attended that day or saw what had happened was traumatised. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, and even the people that watched it unfold before yeah. their eyes on television. Exactly. It was broadcast live on the BBC. So television cameras were there to record the game for Match of the Day. And they were also really played live to the Saturday sports show Grandstand. And in Ireland, the disaster was shown live on the programme Sports Stadium. On BBC Radio, Peter Jones described the horror in front of him, saying the gymnasium here at Hillsborough is being used as a mortuary for the dead. And at this moment, stewards have got little paper bags and they're gathering up the personal belongings of the spectators. So the youngest victim of the day was 10-year-old John Paul, who we mentioned earlier, 10 years old. And the oldest person to die was 67-year-old Gerard Barron. Among the long list of people, there were two sisters that lost their lives. There was a father and son. There were three pairs of brothers. So, so many families had multiple losses. For a mum or a dad to lose both sons. Yeah. Um, In two of the cases, there were men who were about to become fathers. The total of people who died reached 95 on the 19th of April when a teenager named Lee was taken off life support. And in March 1993, food and water were withdrawn from a 22-year-old named Tony after he remained in a vegetative state for four years. So this is the 96th person to die. There is one other person who's been considered by some to be a 97th victim of Hillsborough. It was a man named Stephen who was due to work, so he sold his ticket to his friend. His friend sadly died in the tragedy and survivor guilt is believed to be the main reason that Stephen took his own life in February 2011. So not technically one of the 96, but a lot of people see him as a 97th. And then alongside the absolutely horrific situation that these people found themselves in, where multiple mistakes and errors in judgment resulted in the deaths of so many, there was insult added to injury when the South Yorkshire police began accusing the Liverpool fans of being drunk, late, violent and uncooperative, and having caused the deaths themselves. In the days and weeks following the disaster, the police fed false stories to the press suggesting that hooliganism and drunkenness by Liverpool supporters were the root causes of the disaster. This blame culture continued even after a report was released in 1990 that found the main cause was failings by the police. This was called the Taylor Report, and I will look at that in a little um, little bit more detail shortly. But yeah, basically there were just all these stories that were coming out in the papers and they were just not even true. And I know that the Sun newspaper, which is, I don't know whether you talk about the Sun in this. No, to be honest, I didn't really want to even give them the time of day. Yeah. Cause, but, but yeah, they're yeah, it's, it, it's quite an important bit, but they, mm-hmm. yeah, they kind of, they took a lot of these stories from the police yep. and very much, you know, printed lots of stories blaming yep. the Liverpool they fans. Did. And to this day, so this is 30 years on, you still can't buy a copy of the Sun newspaper in Liverpool I didn't know that no shops will sell it because they boycotted it fair play Uh, you know three decades on that's a newspaper that's you know sold throughout the country um, read by millions of people Mm -hmm. every day but you cannot buy it yeah in or around Liverpool it was horrific the the stories that they printed and then they had to do this massive apology yeah but the damage was done yeah absolutely I didn't know that about not selling it there so there was a lot of controversy as well surrounding the inquests into the death 
So first of all, the coroner, Dr. Stephen Popper, limited the main inquest to events up until 3.15 on the day of the disaster. This was just nine minutes after the match was halted and the crowd spilled onto the pitch. And he said this was because the victims would have been dead or brain damned by this point. This decision was endorsed by the divisional court who considered it to be justified in light of the medical evidence available to him. However, a lot of people are not happy about this because they felt this didn't give the inquest the opportunity to consider the response of the police and other emergency services after that time. And there was one mother whose son was reported as showing signs of life at 4pm. She felt this time of death as some time prior to 3.15 was incorrect. Dr Popper excluded the witness evidence of doctors Ashton and Phillips who were two qualified Merseyside doctors who had been inside the stadium on the day and were critical of the chaotic emergency response. The views of both were dismissed by the Taylor report as well. They did however give evidence at a later inquest in 2016 and Dr Phillips later said that quote he could not fathom why he didn't call us other than he specifically did not want to hear our evidence in which case the first inquests were coloured and flawed before they even started. The only doctor from the scene called for evidence was Sheffield Wednesday's club doctor and some people did feel like the coroner Dr Popper was too close to the police. After the verdicts Barry Devonside who'd lost his son witnessed Popper having a celebration party with police officers. So this was a whitewash, Mm -hmm. really? The inquest returned verdicts of accidental death on the 26th of March 1991 for all victims. This was really upsetting for many of the bereaved families who were hoping for a verdict of unlawful killing or an open verdict. And they actually hoped for manslaughter charges to then be brought against the officers who'd been present. Trevor Hicks, whose two daughters had been killed, described the verdicts as lawful but immoral. And relatives later failed to have the inquest reopened to allow sort of more scrutiny. So going alongside this was the Taylor Inquiry. It was an inquiry overseen by Lord Justice Taylor, which sat for 31 days and published two reports. It released an interim report in August 1989, which laid out the events of the day and some immediate conclusions. And then there was a final report, which was published in January 1990, that outlined general recommendations on sort of football ground safety. The Taylor report found that the main reason for the disaster was the failure of police control and Taylor concluded that policing on the 15th of April broke down and whilst there were other causes, the main reason for the disaster was this failure of police control and that the behaviour of the Liverpool fans, including the accusations of drunkenness, were just secondary factors. He said that most of the fans were not even drunk or even having had a drink and that the police had tried to exaggerate these claims in order to cover up the part that they played. He did admit that some fans had been drunk or had forged tickets or had no tickets. Which is all normal at any football match. Yeah, and they would not have caused this crash on their own. So the report then recommended that all major stadiums convert to an all-seater model and ticketed spectators should have seats rather than some or all of them being obliged to stand. The Football League in England and the Scottish Football League introduced regulations that required clubs in the highest divisions to comply with this recommendation by August 1994 at the very latest. It stated that standing accommodation is not intrinsically unsafe, but actually the government decided, no, we will not have any standing accommodation at any um, pitch from this point on. The report focused on the fact that kickoffs should have been delayed 
and Sheffield Wednesday were criticised for the inadequate number of turnstiles. The need to open gate C, that first gate that was opened, was due to dangerous congestion at the turnstiles, and it was stated, um, like we sort of mentioned earlier, that it could have taken up to 3.40 to actually get everyone safely through had the exit gate not been open. There were more people arriving than space available, so therefore the pens had reached full capacity and should have been closed, but they weren't. And the report also sort of really um, put home to everybody that it's unlikely that people on the pitch at the beginning of a match would be a pitch invasion. It really questioned why was this the initial assumption. There was no effective leadership and no orders were given for officers to enter the tunnel and relieve the pressure. However, following the Taylor report, the Director of Public Prosecutions ruled that there was no evidence to justify prosecution of any individuals or institutions. So the families were still left with no justice in their eyes. So in 1997, Home Secretary Jack Straw requested another investigation and once again there was controversy when Lord Justice Stuart Smith, who headed this investigation, made a jokey remark at a meeting in Liverpool with relatives. He said, have you got a few of your people here or are they like the Liverpool fans and turn up at the last minute? <gasps> I you know. You just don't. What no one would go there, but particularly yeah. somebody in that, uh, you know, He's position of leading responsibility. leading the investigation. Yeah. And he, to be to be fair and give both sides, he did later apologise, but... It's too late. What the fuck, no. Dick. Dick. So when he presented his report in February 1998, he concluded there was insufficient evidence for a new inquiry into the disaster, and he said that this finishing the um, evidence at 3.15 was sound because the principal cause of death, that is crushing, was over. This meant that the police and emergency services response was not going to be scrutinised again, This just wasn't good enough for a lot of people. So the Hillsborough Independent Panel was instituted in 2009 by the British government because in the years after the disaster, the Hillsborough Family Support Group had campaigned for the release of all the relevant documents to go into the public domain. So the government set this up to investigate and produce a report. And on the 12th of September 2012, this report was published and simultaneously they launched a website which contained 450,000 pages of material collected from 85 organisations and individuals over the two years. On the 12th of September, the Hillsborough Independent Panel concluded that no Liverpool supporters were responsible in any way for the disaster, again stating it was a lack of police control, that crowd safety was compromised at every level Overcrowding issues had been recorded two years earlier and were not taken on board. The panel also finally concluded that up to 41 of the 96 who perished might have survived had the emergency services reactions and coordination been improved. So this was based on post-mortem examinations which found some of the victims may have had heart, lung or blood circulation function for some time. If they had been placed into the recovery position instead of just being taken off as dead on their backs, they may not have died. So people were just taking the response of, well, they've died in the crash, and actually they may have survived. They may, and they may have still been alive at that point. Yeah, then, yeah. and they may have been alive at that yeah. point. 164 witness statements had been altered, removing negative remarks about South Yorkshire police. Um, police reports had also been altered and once again it was highlighted that the police had attempted to make it look like alcohol had more of an impact um, than it actually did. After this the Hillsborough Family Support Group called for new inquests as well as prosecutions and the prosecutions were for unlawful killing, corporate manslaughter and perversion of the course of justice 
and there were calls for the police involved in the cover-up to be sacked. So following an application on the 19th of December, the High Court ordered fresh inquests to be held and the inquest started on Monday the 31st of March 2014. On the 6th of April 2016, the nine jurors were sent out to consider their verdicts. The jurors were told that they could only reach the unlawful killing determination if they were sure of four essential matters concerning the deaths. So they had to be convinced that Match Commander Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield owed a duty of care to those who died and that he was in breach of that duty of care. Um, Thirdly, they'd need to be satisfied that his breach of duty caused the deaths. And fourthly, that it amounted to gross negligence. So there's a lot there. Did he have the duty of care? Was he in breach of that duty of care? Would it that be enough to cause the deaths? And also, was it gross negligence? So it's a, a big decision to make. So as Chief Superintendent of South Yorkshire Police, Mr Duckenfield did have overall responsibility for the match. He was newly promoted and inexperienced at overseeing events on such a scale. And on the day, Mr Duckenfield, who now lives in Dorset, gave the order to open that gate. And that was what contributed really mainly to that deadly crush. However, at the time, he told the Football Association that fans had forced the gates open themselves Mm. and he lied. The jury returned a verdict of unlawful killing in respect of all 96 victims by majority verdict of 7 to 2 at 11 o'clock on the 26th of April 2016. So the jury found that features of the design, construction and layout of the stadium were considered dangerous or defective and they caused or contributed to the disaster. Um, Sheffield Wednesday's consultant engineer should have done more to detect and advise on unsafe or unsatisfactory features of the stadium. The police and or the ambulance service caused or contributed to the loss of lives by an error or omission after the terrorist crash had begun to develop. And the jury also said on the role of former South Yorkshire police and ambulance service that the officers at the scene failed to ascertain the nature of the problem the failure to recognize and call a major incident led to delays in the responses to the emergency commanding officers caused or contributed to the crash on the terrace as did the senior officers in the police control room Um, and the policing of the match caused or contributed to the dangerous situation developing Um, the jury said the police delayed calling major incidents so The appropriate emergency response was delayed. There was a lack of coordination, command and control. The jury then concluded that the blunders by the police and ambulance service had caused or contributed to the disaster and all of the victims had been unlawfully killed. Prime Minister David Cameron responded to the April 2016 verdict by saying it represented a long overdue but landmark moment in the quest for justice, adding all families and survivors now have official confirmation of what they always knew was the case, that the Liverpool fans were utterly blameless in the disaster that unfolded at Hillsborough. And after the verdict, South Yorkshire Police Chief Constable David Crompton said his force unequivocally accepted the verdict of unlawful killing and the wider findings found by the jury. It wasn't until these new inquests that Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield admitted telling this terrible lie over the tragedy when he'd said that the fans had tried to open the gate themselves. He apologised unreservedly to the families who died and after decades of denial, he told jurors that he had been on a personal journey through bouts of depression, whiskey drinking and doctors, his own road to Damascus to face up to the truth. 
So finally, the families had justice for their loved ones and honest, truthful answers about what had gone wrong and they could finally have closure. Did David Duckenfield get charged with anything? Um, yes, I can't remember for definite what the charges were, but he was one of the yeah one of them. Yeah, rightly so. Absolutely, there were lots of prosecutions then. So there we go. Really what sad a... case because so many oh. deaths, and I think you know what one of those reports said that there'd been concerns two years before this happened Mm -hmm. about the safety and overcrowding. So this was just a disaster waiting to happen, whether it was there or going to be somewhere else before Mm -hmm. all of the improvements were made across our country to different football stadiums. But yeah, it was always going to happen. I think that's what's really tragic about it. So there we go. I can see how it's, nice little was a really difficult one for you. Yeah, really, um... Really hit home, and I don't know why. It was quite a difficult one to write. But then once I started writing, I thought, I can't not. um, Hopefully, you know, we've got everything accurate there mm -hmm. um, in respect to all of the victims. And our thoughts are, you know, still with them and their friends Mm. and families to this day. Anyone who's affected by this tragedy. You can absolutely find um, a list of all of the 96 names. And there's um, hundreds of different tributes, but there's like a carved marble wall with all the names on as well so they're all really really remembered and it's it is absolutely a part of our history now this is something that is mentioned mm-hmm. all the time yeah. you know 30 years on it's still yeah. it's still spoken about and as as we said you know we would have been very young when this happened but mm. i've grown up hearing about it knowing about it yeah um, because exactly. it's been in the news because of all these kind of well, everything kind of coming up all yeah, the time and yeah. over and over. And this should have all just been done at the time. Yeah, for it to take 27 Horrific. years yeah. to get to that point and for the families to get some form of closure mm-hmm. is unacceptable. It really is. Now at least we can focus on the memories of the victims exactly. rather than having to seek justice for them. Yeah, and I think it, that was the key thing that I was then trying to make sure that I remembered coming out of this is people like that guy that was in hospital who was like, hey, give me a free ticket to the replay. I just thought, you know what, fair fair point like yeah he's he's making a joke of it he's a lot of these people then got to meet the footballers who they did love and sometimes the footballers would turn up at the doorsteps and the families would actually slam the door in their face and say go away we don't want to talk to you but Kenny Dalglish really led them and he was like no you need to make the effort you need to make sure that they do talk to you because yes they're going to be angry but they need to see that it's affected you as well and yeah, he was someone who's just come out of this. I've got such respect for him. I don't even know what he does anymore. I don't know if he's mm. in football anymore. I know the name, so he must have... Maybe he still does. Yeah, I someone mean, maybe he's like us. a commentator or something. Probably. Yeah, if you're a football fan, let us know what he does now. I just want to I want to meet him. I love him now. I think he's yeah. such an amazing person. So yeah, I wanted to end on that sort of good thing of the, the spirits of people and the humour, even though it's such an absolute tragedy and people still have those minutes silence is the good memories as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Yep, and we will be back with you next week. Bye. Bye.